0: So I look at international religious freedom policy. It's like U.S. um, foreign policy toward promoting religious freedom abroad. I don't know that I'm ever anybody you want to bring to a dinner table, like a dinner party, because I talk about religion and politics. Like the two things you're not allowed to talk about are the things I most love talking about.
1: Hey, this is Matt. Today I talked with Ashlyn Hand, a fourth year Ph.D. student at the LBJ School and a scholar at the Clemens Center. Today we talked about religious freedom in U.S. foreign policy and narrowed in on the example of Uzbekistan and what's been going on with regards to Uzbekistan and what makes it kind of a unique case as it relates to U.S. foreign policy. And we touched on how uh, religious freedom issues have changed amongst presidential administrations and a lot of stuff. It was fascinating for me. I think you guys will have a lot of fun. You're listening
0: to The Slavic Connection. Brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
1: Ashlyn, welcome.
0: Thank you so much. It's good to be here.
1: Ashlyn is a PhD student at the LBJ School, and she's doing some really interesting research.
0: Yeah, so I'm... A fourth-year PhD student, and I'm finishing up my proposal stage, so have a dissertation project finally, so that feels uh-huh. good. But I look at international religious freedom and what the United States has done mainly in the last 25 years to promote religious freedom abroad. What might be most interesting today is that I can talk a little bit about what is happening in Uzbekistan and what's been happening in Uzbekistan and how that how that has changed, beginning in the Clinton administration through the Bush years and then now yeah. a little bit
1: of background for our yeah, listeners please. is just that you know, Uzbekistan when it was part of the Soviet Union was part of an atheist state, right? Sure. And so I'm sure that you're looking at the period where now they had to figure out how they have to deal with the fact that they're a massively, you know, Muslim Country, right. and How they, I guess, legislate around that and make laws pertaining to that—is that absolutely what you're kind of looking at? Yes.
0: Yeah, so so um, we can go ahead and dive right into that yeah. case if you want, or I could give a little bit of background on the law itself. Sure, give, give some more background sure.
1: on it, and then we'll dive in later.
0: Okay, that sounds good. Um, so in 1999, we passed the International Religious Freedom Act. Um, it was mainly a bunch of evangelicals that brought it together, but also um, people of all different faiths. It kind of the movement grew in breadth and. And it brought together a pretty unlikely alliance of people. It was the Tibetan monks. Um, There's a strong contingency of people trying to work against religious repression in Tibet. Same was true for Muslim populations in China, um, but also in the Middle East in some places. Uzbekistan being one of them, as well as Christians throughout the world. Um, So after this was passed, there was a new office in the State Department that was created. And we have an ambassador at large that handles international religious freedom on its own.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's fascinating.
0: And a strange thing that, as you can imagine, um, none of these issues are taking place in a vacuum. And so the State Department kind of has become this bureaucratic place where we're trying to balance every type of concern when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. So you have security concerns, you have economic concerns, you have alliance relationship, treaty obligations all happening at one time. Often, unfortunately, human rights can go to the very bottom of that. The criticism that's been levied before is that the State Department is religiously illiterate. Um, It's a hard thing to be literate about because there's so many different faiths and they proliferate so differently. But unfortunately, it can be an understudied issue at all areas of government, and one of them is at the State Department. And so, seeing, kind of reacting against that, this act was passed, hoping that by shutting, highlighting the issue on its own, um, that it might get more traction. Uh-huh. So since then, every year, there's now, through that office, we monitor what religious freedom looks like across the world. And is there and and, a report that comes out? Yes. Oh, okay. So there's a massive report um, that comes out that identifies what are called countries of particular concern or CPC. And that um, when that designation happens, typically that means that the president is then called upon through this act to make some type of policy action, read sanctions. Um, you can waiver those sanctions based on security concerns, which as we'll talk about in a minute with Uzbekistan has been something we've had to do. But it it explores a lot of those tensions between compromise but commitment between toleration but also freedom so there's lots of different tensions that are involved
1: and so i know that the obviously the state department does a lot of stuff related to human rights more b- mm-hmm. broadly, is this kind of like a subsection of that or is this considered kind of almost something totally separate?
0: Yeah, so you're, um, without even meaning to, you're getting at one of the heart of the controversies of when the law was passed, <laughs> okay. which was um, Madeleine Albright, uh, Secretary of State at the time, said, I think she was talking to a group of students when she mentioned that it was just going to create a false hierarchy of human rights, oh. um, that other hi- that other human rights might be pushed later. Um, the reaction to that from people in this field, in this community, was like, well, we don't want there to be a hierarchy either, but right now, religion isn't even on the docket. So Mm -hmm. the only way that it's going to be paid attention to at all is if you make a new office. So to answer your question, it is a new entity, and it's an entity that exists on its own, but it's housed within the State Department bureaucracy of, I think it's human rights, uh, labor policy. So... So
1: this report that comes out regularly, it, it'll it just kind of go country by country and say, mm-hmm. here are some religious freedom issues that, that we know of, and it'll kind of describe the cases that they know of. So exactly. That's it works.
0: Yes. And so you'll see that it's split up into tiers based on religious freedom violations. So tier one is where those countries of particular concern come in. So that's where we focus resources. There is technically a report done for every country
1: and does it touch on at all well i just i know that in some countries like saudi arabia there there's you know legal repercussions for apostasy which is just leaving the yeah. blasphemy is that also something because this is yes. also something where it's like it's not that well i guess in a certain sense it's kind of a freedom not to be religious or not be religious in right. way that you want to.
0: There was actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that because there was, um, I think it was in 2014, but you might want to check the date. Um, 2014, there was a change in the language to include agnostics and people uh-huh. who are, aren't of faith um, for that very reason. Okay, that over wow. and over what we were seeing out of these reports was apostasy laws and blasphemy laws that that even like they were using legal mechanisms to basically um, force people into faith, which is the exact opposite of freedom of religion. And so the law protects atheists and those people who don't identify as a faith as well. Now, I guess
1: we can jump into Uzbekistan. And so, sure. what, what do you know about Uz- Uzbekistan's kind of history with regards to religious freedom?
0: Right. Um, so, you mentioned it a minute ago, talking about um, it is a former Soviet state. And as such, um, there's been ongoing debate of what was going to replace communism that at the time um, was so dominant ideologically, but also um, politically. Uh, So there's been a fear that religions and religious life would be somehow co-opted by the state. And as you mentioned earlier, I think Uzbekistan, it's like 93% Muslim. So it's a very religious place. Um, It's people are religious, which that makes it different than the other case studies that I'm looking at. I'll
1: I'll interrupt you to, to, to insert one interesting fact. I know that you know, in the late 80s, uh, the U.S. did a lot of things to actually make Uzbekistan and other of the the southern republics of the Soviet Union more religious. They would smuggle Qurans into those countries to kind of, because the idea huh. was that religion would be one of the ways that kind of lead for their national uh, uprising. Um, Interesting. And so there, and at that time, they was very active to to huh. develop the religious aspect.
0: Right, yeah. right. Well, and in, in and it's interesting to study Uzbekistan in comparison to um, Saudi Arabia, which you just mentioned, because Saudi Arabia, of course, like, you know, they it looks completely different when a state is favoring entirely and is a theocracy, right. one specific faith. Sure. Um, so it makes sense. And it's more intuitive to me that in Saudi Arabia, um, the minority populations would also be the ones that are discriminated against. And right. there's ethnic and... Territorial lines um, that are kind of at play as well. In Uzbekistan, it's quite different because you have the overwhelming majority is religious, but the government is very hostile to religion. So the biggest question, and this is true in the academic literature, um, it's also true Based on if you if you start reading speeches of the Uzbek government, it's it's interesting that fear plays such a dominant role in their religious policies. I was going to say religious freedom policies, but that's not right. And their um in their restrictions and their regulations surrounding right. faith, um, so it is something that um as I keep researching, this idea of fear comes back over and over and over again, and so fearing and geographically, Uzbekistan is in a a difficult geographical position in the middle of, I mean, it's, it's neighbors. There is not a neighbor that doesn't add complexity to the relationship between Kazakhstan
1: and Tajikistan and Turkmenistan. So, yeah. Yes.
0: Um, and it's also part of a massive, network, like the, what is it? The national distribution network, um, that, or Northern distribution network, excuse me, where we funnel supplies through right. all the time and right. like rely Absolutely. on them as a strategic partner. So we have complicated relations as Americans have complicated relationship with Uzbekistan in general as well. Cause we rely, um, on something that we rely on them for something that Pakistan gives us sometimes and then takes away and leverages over us too. But looking at the role of fear in the way that uzbekistan monitors faith happens in two different ways so on the first you're afraid of terrorism occurring there's an, an a distinct and not unfounded fear of extremism and of islamist Radicalization. Uh, I know
1: that a few, a few Uzbeks did make it to Egil to, to ISIS. Indeed. So, sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's also Kazakhstan in particular in the 90s. I mean, it, it was in a hotbed region where we had seen what's happening in the Middle East, and there was still this kind of growing uncertainty of what the future would look like for radicalization in Central Asia. Um, And so that's part of what I look at is why that fear exists and what those tensions are saying. Because from our perspective, an American perspective would say that as you repress people, and some of my other quantitative research is arriving at the same at the same conclusion, like as you repress people, the likelihood for violence actually increases quite different than the intuition that's being espoused by the Uzbek government, which says that only because radicalization is such a terrible problem and we foresee it only increasing, we have to be restrictive. Mm-hmm. So the role of fear is interesting there. It's interesting to me that also in Uzbekistan, you have terrorism working kind of against us in both ways. One, as the Uzbek people are being terribly repressed. And what's happening in Uzbekistan, especially around the Muslim community, it affects um, Christians and people of other faiths too, but it's absolutely targeted toward Muslims and people that they fear are radicalized. Mm-hmm. The term radicalized or extremist almost reads like someone calling you a communist, um, you know, yeah, a few decades back here in the United States. It's right. like, if you're labeled an extremist, all of your privileges as a normal citizen fade away. And that's happening all the time. They have judicial processes that are in place that are purely rhetorical and have no substantive impact on people's lives. They can claim that they have that Muslims in particular have ways to achieve a fair hearing or a fair shot around the law. But it's all, uh, I mean, Human Rights Watch, I think, calls it the largest piece of red tape we've seen in a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's what it feels like. It's a piece of tape that they can cut through whenever they want.
1: The question that's coming to mind for me is for me, and I don't know, you know, whether or not you have know anything about this. But I think an interesting country to compare to Uzbekistan is something like Turkey, which also lived for a long time under a secular mm-hmm. government and all, and really secular dictatorships. But now is trying to kind of reassert its religiosity, but but can't in certain in certain ways. And so I was wondering, do you know any any? I mean, can you compare and contrast those examples between Turkey and? Uzbekistan at all, like the the extent to which the stuff going on is directly tied to its communist past and and makes the the religious freedom case in... Uzbekistan really unique or different from other things we're seeing?
0: Yeah, I, you know and I can't, I'm not a regional expert. And so I can't speak in detail of the relationship with Turkey there. Um, And I don't know even much about our foreign policy in Turkey. I will say that I think that Uzbekistan case is unique in part because of, in terms of our foreign policy, because of their geographic location. I think there's a transition Between the former president of Uzbekistan and the current president, there's been a massive shift And what this is like getting away from your question, but a massive shift into what we thought was going to be a better set of issues. Like Mm -hmm. the rhetorical lines in the law have changed and they're getting away like further and further away from some of the original language that, you know, the very year we passed, 1998 was the International Religious Freedom Act. That same year is the year Uzbekistan passed the law on freedom and conscience of religious organizations, which strangely is the most severely limiting piece of legislation (laughs) about Uh religious activity Uh that um, has happened in a really long time in Uzbekistan. And so I think I think in some ways there's hope that it, will, that it could get better and will get better in Uzbekistan, but they have a lot with the new administrative shift, but they have a lot of work to do. I was uh-huh. a little bit surprised myself that the report didn't last year, that we didn't see enough improvement for them to downgrade off of the tier one status. But because of some of the new changes in law that from a rhetorical perspective looked really promising, uh-huh. things like easing. One of the biggest things that Uzbekistan has used as a control mechanism over the last 20 years is the registration process of religion. Mm-hmm. So any unregistered religious activity is illegal, but the registration process is incredibly arduous. Right. And I mean, and some of the things are insane. Like in order to be a recognized religion, you have to have a permanent representation of at least eight of the prov- eight of the thirteen provinces or might be nine. So smaller governments, I mean smaller religious organizations Likely have right. no chance sure, of ever sure, getting registered, sure, making sure. all of their activities illegal, and in some of them like we have seen a little bit of an easing in dress code over the last couple years, where you know it used to be only clerics were allowed, and of course the clerics that had been properly registered were allowed to wear any type of religious garb, and we are seeing ease in some of those restrictions, um, but like you said, only in certain places. For
1: the most part. Are you kind of optimistic about a country like uh, Uzbekistan with regards to questions of religious freedom? Do you feel like in the next 10, 20 years, things are going to get better, kind of just be stagnant status quo, or we might actually see greater infringements on religious freedom in a country like that?
0: I, you know, I, I I do have some optimism, um, perhaps more than I should. In fact, some of it um, <laughs> last year, there was a, if I'm honest with you, the policy toward, you know, increasing religious freedom abroad hasn't been, has not been a great success. Like yeah. it's an, it's an intractable problem in, in so many respects. Um, I don't think that means we shouldn't try to do things when we can, but I also know that It's not as if the United States can decide that religious repression is going to end and then suddenly it does. We struggle with it um, even in our own country. But I do think that that there is room for optimism only because of some of the new the new easing of laws, like easing of, of religious restrictions and an increased openness of Uzbek officials to have ongoing relationship with the United States and conversations about this very issue. And so I think it was this last year that uh, the State Department held its first ministerial for the advancement of religious freedom. Um, It was a massive summit that brought people from all over the world. And this was the first time Uzbek officials were there, Uh. who were present, um, which was exciting. And again, it was the first of its kind, Um, whether or not those things, we've yet to see those Conversational and like diplomatic channels, um, we've we've yet to see changes on the ground through that. But I definitely think we are, we're taking steps in the right direction.
1: And with regards to the way this element of American foreign policy is kind of acted out and pursued, you know, as we know, foreign policy is made not in the State Department but in the White House. And so, do do you notice kind of big changes in how religious freedom is? Pursued depending on which president, which which administration is is in the White House.
0: That's that's a great question. Uh, I would push back a little bit and say that foreign policy it's not nearly as um, discreet as it used to be, and it's less discreet perhaps than most people realize. Um, I don't think all of the decision making power is just in the executive, because the executive networks out from there. So the executive's right. relationship with with of course the Secretary of State and right. ambassadors, um, I think, does impact the content of the policy. Policy itself. With that said, I think I think you're right. Like you know, each time, part of what I'm interested in in studying this is how we transition between presidencies, um, both on the side of you know the new the new president, and I'm gonna I'm gonna mess up her name, the new president, Zoyav. I think so. I think so? That one I do think I have, right? But that, it's it's interesting to me because it's the relationships between executives. It's not just our president. It's like, what does, how is our president relating to the new president? Um, I think Trump has made that more difficult in some ways. But with that said, Vice President Pence has taken up the cause of religious freedom more so than the president has. But it looks very different than it did in Obama's years. Obama was... I think a little bit more tentative to use the words international religious freedom and was much, his work on religion was much more about increasing the literacy and religious engagement generally. That was kind of John Kerry's phrasing Mm -hmm. was religious engagement um, because he wanted it to be more broad. Even there was an office of religious engagement at the state department during his tenure, which in some ways worked alongside, but oppositely of the um, Office of International Religious Freedom, which again looked very different than the Bush administration. The Bush, Bush speaks about religious freedom all the time. It's one of his you know, cornerstone policies that he's um, tried to achieve. With that said, none of these administrations have made major strides. I think Vietnam is one of the only cases where we've seen real, real religious freedom progress
1: So we published this report. How do nations usually react when when they see on there, look, you know, X country is doing X, Y, and Z violations. How do they usually log their complaints? Is it formally logged? Is it they'll, something they'll say to the media? And how is there any interplay between what we say and then how states react?
0: Well, what's interesting is that I I would have expected any time we call a country a country of particular concern for there to be outrage. It's not true. Sometimes it's looked upon as especially a state like Saudi Arabia, it's looked upon as a, almost a sense of purity because uh, they are they are not looking for the United States to give them yeah. a gold star yeah. versus the opposite of that would be a state like China that even though we have more evidence of all of what they're doing, um, that they deny all of it. Mm-hmm. They deny everything. They just pretend it's not an issue, it, that the weaker Muslims are doing fine. And
1: I know with regards to human rights violations, one funny thing that China and a lot of other states do is when we present them our report of here are the human rights, they, they present their own report Absolutely, the, the human they rights violations in the United States. They preempt yeah. it with their own report, too. And so they've started to have a lot of other states. I was wondering, is there something like that? Have other states ever done something like that for religious freedom?
0: You know, I'm not sure in particular. I think there was a lot of, in terms of like a formal but report. I can see
1: Saudi Arabia saying, oh, but look how right. Muslim rights in the United States are being, right. just be an interesting kind of rhetorical uh, strategy that they Absolutely. could use. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, and I think it's it would be remiss not to mention that y- human rights and religious freedom, even though it's what I study and what I care about and something that um, I'm very passionate about, even just learning about one way or the other, uh, every, not everybody's that way. And mm-hmm. so thinking about the State Department, thinking about the executive and the number of challenges that are pulling on you know, the top levels of government on any given day, there are other things to worry about. So I think the even as this report goes out, the way that the United States handles it is in relation to what's happening between, you know, our relationship with that country sure, in general. Sure. Like we have very intense economic ties to China. That's going to change the right. way we talk it's about human a, rights. A
1: piece of bilateral relations.
0: Absolutely. Sure. Exactly. We have we rely heavily on the on the transportation networks in Uzbekistan and Pakistan like that changes the way that we can talk about our relationship with those countries um
1: but, yeah. but hold on wouldn't it be a scandal if somebody if if there was found to be a connection between I mean that that doesn't change how the 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 religious freedom report is written it's not like they're going to water it down just because no, this nation not is at our, all. our ally no. right there's I'm sure there's institutional safeguards that say that this has no effect on other elements of Absolutely. US foreign policy right Yes
0: and there's actually a watch this is an important piece of this bill that I think was brilliant which is the creation of a nonpartisan, independent commission oh, okay. that monitors all of this. Okay. So all of the like monitoring process is going through an independent, nonpartisan commission. So as you could see how the politics could get involved and in, sure. you know, Absolutely. depending on a different executive's priorities Absolutely. change
1: um, and so you're just, writing about this for your PhD thesis. I am, yeah. And, and where do you see this going ultimately? Do you think this, could, I, could we be reading a book about this of yours in a I few years? I hope so. Okay. Yeah.
0: You want to publish it? Do you do, do that too or no? <laughs> I know. Uh,
1: unfortunately, well, the Slavic Connection is not yet a- Not uh, yet a publisher. A, a, a syndicated <laughs> publisher. But, oh, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately.
0: I don't know that I'm ever anybody you want to bring to a dinner table, like a dinner party, because I talk about religion and politics. Like The two things you're not allowed to talk about are the things I most love talking about. About. Um And so I don't know how many people would want to read my book. Unfortunately, I spend a whole lot of my time reading through things that are terribly sad and, and reading about people's lives that have been upended just because of um, their faith. So, you know, I've tried to, even though I think those stories are important and I think it matters that we share those individual stories. Um, Some of my work is quantitative and I found that easier in a way, like to look at things from a little bit of a bird's eye view um, to explore some of those connections between religious freedom and our own security, security situation. Um, But yeah, I would love to write on that. Um, I think the dissertation as it's, as it's taking shape includes a lot about, how our bureaucracies work and a lot about how we respond to foreign governments and mm-hmm. timing and um, balancing multiple strategic priorities. And so I think balancing multiple strategic priorities is, is something that I will be interested in and hopefully will be allowed to write and research um, about for a long time.
1: There, there was a book, John Gleb. Yeah, I don't know if you know him. I but do. Yeah, he had a really interesting book recommendation, and the author actually came to to LBJ last semester and talked about it "From Selma to Moscow." Sure, um, Snyder. Heard, Sarah Sni- Snyder. Sarah Snyder. Yeah, I don't know if the kind of stuff that she wrote about and you know is a scholar of is kind of related to what you're doing, but but it's about this way that kind of America's domestic situations have been bureaucratize themselves into foreign policy. And it seems like if there's something going on like this in human rights, as we touched on then there's probably something similar going on in kind of religious freedom issues.
0: Hmm, That's an an interesting point. I haven't thought about her work has been very useful for me in the way that she has structured even her ideas uh, and making those connections between the domestic and the international. Um, I'm not sure... I'm not sure about what that would look like to kind of take that argument and apply yeah. and explore, but it'd be really interesting to explore. Cause I bet you're right that there's, that there's, you know, more connections than, than we realize. My advisor um, who works at the Clement Center here, he's a professor, Dr. M. Bowden, William Imboden. Right. Okay. He actually did a fascinating study that looks at the, I think his book is called the soul of containment, mm-hmm. but it looks at kind of the way that religion in the United States and Particularly, individual religiosity of policymakers um, changed the way that we approach foreign policy during during the Cold War, and yeah. and I think that you can see those lines over and over again. That's something that originates whether an, whether it's with an individual or with a policy issue in the United States. You know, it takes root, and and that changes the way that we think about foreign policy and think about the U.S. role in the world. One of the things
1: we like to do as we wrap up uh, on the Slavic Connection is just get get a, a book or a movie recommendation or even an article or something recently that you that you experience enjoy, that you you'd like to kind of share with our listeners. You know,
0: I'm I should have brought this up before cuz is the perfect time. So I appreciate the question. Um, there's a book called The White Knights by White Boris Sokolov and it is basically and I, I mean full disclosure my husband may or may not have had a huge role in getting it republished so like dis- disclosure okay. there financial if you're yeah it will actually be but not really. no there's no financial no, no financial gain to be had but there is um, some some connection that needs to be recognized um, but it's a fascinating story about a man who is witnessing the fall of democracy in Russia Wow. And, you know, I, I have a few friends, mainly from the Clemens Center, that are Russian historians. And Mark, when he first stumbled upon this book, there was like one left on Amazon. It's like $500 or something. Mm-hmm. But he had a friend and had lent him a copy. Um, and that friend's name is Trevor. And when Trevor gave the book to Mark, my husband, Mark was like, There's no way this is real. There's no way this is true. And he sent, uh, asked some of my friends at the Clement Center to check it out on um, the story is insane. It's almost like a Forrest Gump of this period in Russia where this man just ends up in all of these situations um, that oh are, this, that are pretty amazing.
1: This is, Ashlyn, this is like, the book sounds right at my alley. Okay, great. I need to read this. The, yeah, <laughs> it's
0: great. It's called The White Knights. Bowen Press um, is the one that published it, but it's fascinating. And he also gives a lot of really thoughtful insights. It's it's his notebook, basically, so it's mm. chronicling his whole time over the years, but gives a lot of really thoughtful insights on democracy, um, of why individual freedom matters. Um, it's a really great book.
1: Well, Ashlyn, it's been such a pleasure yeah, to talk to you. you. Thank you for coming on.
0: Thank you so we much. Love I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to The Slavic Connection. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.